0: Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in your siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more, what we explore together with your hosts Emmanuel Padilla and the Dr. Elizabeth Conde Fraser. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we sit down with Pastor David Swanson. After writing "Rediscipling the White Church," Pastor Swanson has gone on to be an important voice in Christian racial solidarity movements. We sit down to talk to him about his vision for rediscipleship why he prefers the language of brother and sister over ally and what it means to have fellowship with rediscipled white congregations. So siéntase en casa, make yourself at home and let's get started. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so
1: much for having me. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that you're with us, brother. Let me uh, real quick let the audience know who you are. Uh, David is the founding pastor of New Community Covenant Church here in the south side of Chicago where I'm living. He's also the CEO of New Community Outreach and previously served as a director of church planting for the Evangelical Covenant Church. David and his wife Maggie have been married for 22 years and he has two sons uh, with her as well. So, David, let me ask. Uh, I know that you've been in the multicultural movement. I know you're here in Chicago. I ask everyone who uh, who uh, may not be used to it: How can you hang in the Spanish language? Are we going to have to be translated? Or are you you going to hang with us? I can do
1: Spanglish, okay. I do have uh, I do have a few years in Venezuela and Ecuador under my belt as a missionary kid. So uh, as long as you don't go too quick, I can probably stay with you.
0: All right. Okay. All right. So we'll we'll go nice and slow. To get you all up to speed, brother. I'm glad that you, I didn't know that. A couple years in, what'd you say, Venezuela, you said? Venezuela y Ecuador. In Quito. Y Ecuador. Ooh, with the, with the roll of the R. Did you hear that, Elizabeth? He He's not joking.
1: <laughs> well, that's what happens when you're two years old and your family moves. You know, you don't really have a choice
0: in the that matter.
2: That's what happens when you play with trucks.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, he's serious about it. Let me welcome the new listener. If you've not been listening to the Mestizo podcast, welcome to a mixed space, a space where people live in or on the hyphen. We like to say a, se- a space that is neither ni nor there, not from here or from there. And we're excited that you're joining us. This is the third season of the Mestizo podcast. We have been exploring the dynamics that exist between us as hyphenated people. And so we're excited to have I'm going to say it, David. I hope that's all right. Our first white brother joined the podcast to talk, uh, Whoa, to talk with right? us. That is right. That is okay. right.
1: <laughs> I will receive that pressure.
0: Yeah, there you go. Hey, uh, if you're looking to dive deeper into the kinds of things that we talk about here on the Mestizo Podcast, World Outspoken now has launched a series of online courses where you can get further into the challenges and come up with tools that will help you address the kinds of things that you're facing As your church experiences cultural change. You can go to learn.worldoutspoken.com. There are three courses that are currently there. There's going to be two more coming in the fall. One that I'm really excited about is a course on preaching in this kind of mixed space. So make sure to check out learn.worldoutspoken.com so you can get further into the kind of training that we can offer at World Outspoken. And I also haven't said this in a while, Y'all know that a podcast functions well when it's got plenty of reviews submitted to the podcast platform. We haven't said it in a while this season. But if you if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're using and leave us a review. Tell us your story of how you've been engaging with us in conversation. You can follow us at social on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at World Outspoken. And if you have any questions about the conversations we're having today, you can actually send those questions in. You can call 312 that's 312-725-2995, leave us a 30 second voicemail with your name, city y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. You can also leave those questions in a comment box if you follow the link on the show notes, if you prefer to write those in. So those are all my kind of quick announcements here before we talk to David. Now, I have to say, David, the timing of your book, Rediscipling the White Church, Man has the timing been uh, spirit-led, I think, but also really wild in terms of how how the book then kind of became a kind of fire starter in certain mm-hmm. places. Mm-hmm. So, just for the sake of the audience, for those uh, Latinos who may not know, right, your book "Rediscovering the White Church" released just a little over a month before the George Floyd Floyd protest, just mm-hmm. a little over a month, if I'm not mistaken, and then of course it it kind of followed along the kind of track of as the anti-CRT movement kind of developed, as the kind of politic uh, politicizing of that mm-hmm. topic kind of came to be, your book was out. Mm-hmm. You know, how has the timing of your book shaped the conversation around the work that you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can take zero credit whatsoever for the timing, uh, as as folks know who've written books. You know, you you do your best to to try to uh, be a part of a conversation that's beginning or that's been happening for a while. Um, but certainly, I can take absolutely no credit for that. Uh, you know, I I understood that there will always be um, in, in this country these kinds of moments, uh, just by by nature of the, the kind of country that we live in. But the the confluence of the pandemic and then the racial uprisings around, you know, not just the George uh, Floyd killing, but uh, you know, Breonna Taylor Ahmaud and Matt Arbery and so on. Uh, it was it was a particular moment and I remember asking some friends and mentors of color you know is this is this actually different are we experiencing something different right now because I, I have a cynical side and and what I heard time and time again from folks who've been in this work much longer than I have was that what felt different to them was how many white people were were, uh, willing to speak up and be present and be active. That's what felt different to many of, of my friends and mentors. And so I think in that way, the, the book was uh, probably was was better received initially than it would have been otherwise. I, I'm pretty sure my mom would have read the book. I, I'm pretty sure she would have read the book, but I didn't expect much beyond that, to be honest. And so to, to be hearing from pastors around the country who were looking for resources in that moment, who realized that there was a responsibility that they and their church had, that they had overlooked or, or willfully ignored for a long, long time. And now they're kind of desperately looking for resources. That was, that was a surprise to me, for sure.
0: I'm not, I, that, that resonates. That makes sense. And I'm glad that the mentors kind of spoke it that way, because I think that's true. You know, there's a line early in your book in reference to this, uh, you, the title of the book, Rediscipling the White Church. That that phrase, re-discipling, is a kind of, it's an interesting phrase, one that should catch everyone off guard. Rediscipling, What's the re part of this, right? In the book, you, you have this quote early in the book. You say, white Christianity has been blind to the powerful racial discipleship that has formed the imaginations of white Christians. When you talk about re-discipleship with this focus on imaginations, what mm-hmm. is it that you mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it is just a, what I, what I hope is a biblical anthropology, which is to say that, that we are not as human beings primarily uh, thinking beings. We don't think our way through the world and, uh, you know, to the chagrin of many pastors, we don't even believe our way through the world. <laughs> I, too many times in the pulpit, I've said, now if we just really believed this, but but that's a shallow biblical anthropology because we, uh, we are emotional creatures and we're imaginative creatures and we move through the world as fully embodied people with imaginations and assumptions and so on. And those imaginations, those assumptions, those loves and desires have been deeply shaped by a racialized society, a society that has been racialized since it's very... Uh, beginnings and that that pedagogy doesn't have to be explicit it's in the air that we breathe it's in the stories that we tell it's in the Uh, The the legends and the myths that we celebrate and all of those things impact all of us. And and in this book, I'm particularly thinking about the way that white Christians have been impacted by this, again, what I call racial discipleship, a a kind of formation which has oriented white Christians away from solidarity with the body of Christ and into a a deeper solidarity with those who have been racialized as, as white with us, whether or not they share our Christian faith.
2: So this is very powerful. Let's stop here for just a second because imagination evokes emotions, right? And if I've been discipled, this racial discipleship that we all have, because it has—it's a relationship, and it works from both sides. Mm. We we hold this up together. I've learned, as well, of a different kind of racial discipleship. Mm. I've learned to be careful. I've learned to be suspicious. I've learned to be distrusting.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Right. And that doesn't fare well for um, reconciliation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if we think that that's a fruit that comes from this type of uh, discipleship. So, imagination, emotions evoked, um, stories are part of the imagination. Yeah. The legends and the myths that you speak about. They've taken years in this country, Um, and theology has been a part of that, right? Theology is a part of this cadre of imagination pieces, et cetera. Um, We've taken those myths and stories and legends, and we've created theologies out of them, right? So now, how have you gone about to help to break those down? What kinds of resistances um, have you received, and yet at the same time, where have been the uh, breakthroughs and the little miracles?
1: <laughs> yeah, thank God for little miracles, right? The the, the, mm-hmm. the mustard seed and the yeast of the kingdom is is what we're looking for. Now, I, I appreciate that that question a lot, though I, I I think that what you say is so true that. The way that we theologize is not out of nothing. It's it's informed by our, our surroundings. It's in, it's informed by our understandings and our assumptions of the world. And and those things, in our own uh, uh, United States context, have been racialized. So I think for me, uh, the the ways that I've tried to begin to poke some holes, as it were, in in some of those assumptions. Uh, with white people in particular, is to point out that what we have assumed to be uh, normal and neutral and natural are not any of those things. Uh, that the the sort of inevitability of the way that we do theology is in fact not inevitable at all, but has behind it the force of particular decisions and assumptions and worldviews, uh, often very uh, tainted themselves by uh, kind of a, a racist understanding of other people. So uh, there's there's a few ways that we can do this. We can do this historically and we can kind of pull from history, the explicit motives of uh, many of the, uh, the, the Christian leaders who we might look to in, in white Christian spaces and hold up. We can also do this, and, and this is probably where I've been the most formed by simply learning to be good learners and listeners uh, to our sisters and brothers uh, who 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 kind of willfully exi- exist outside of the bounds of of racial whiteness um, throughout the history of this country, there is there have always been those those prophetic voices who have been describing uh, the the nature of whiteness and white Christianity. This is not a new thing that we're talking about. Uh, their sisters and brothers have been doing this forever. Very rarely has it been white Christians who've done this. There have been some exceptions. But if we're willing to listen to these sisters and brothers uh, who have done this work, I'm thinking of people like uh, like Frederick Douglass, for example, who is able to, with such precision, uh, define the differences between uh, the pure and peaceable uh, religion of Christ, as he says, and, and the and the slave holding, women whipping a uh, 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 you know chain inducing Christianity of this land Th- that's that's what I um that's where I get hopeful that's where I have seen there there, there to be some fruit is when we break out of the, the the constructs of how we've done our theology and biblical interpretation and realize that there's an entire world of biblically faithful people out there uh, who have something to say to us
2: so we've always had those people. Let me let me let me push here a little bit. We've always had those people. You just named Frederick Douglass. I mean, that certainly predates me as old as I may look. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but um this racist legacy has continued. And it has continued within and through the church. And there's this strong element of denial and of refusing to listen. And now the whole CRT piece has become the the next form of this tremendous denial on the part of people, not only in the church, but in wider society, et cetera. And the church always sort of, you know, jumps on this bandwagon kind of thing. How do you break through that? That for me is where there are powers and principalities, yeah. if I might yeah. say it that way. Yes, right? absolutely. So how do you break through that? Because that takes more than analysis. Yes. So far you've talked to me about doing some historical analysis, defined motives, you've talked about the analysis that, you know, those of us who have uh, looked at these pieces have offered. But this is a strong denial yeah. that continues to promote, give the space for things to continue as they have been and for things to grow. It's almost mm-hmm. like bringing oxygen to the fire. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How do you break through that?
1: Yeah. I, I'm going to start by saying I don't know um, if, if I if I had a good answer for that, I, I would Quit my job and be on the street corner telling everybody uh, the answer because I think that's um, that's how desperate the, the situation is. K- uh, historian Carol Anderson wrote a book called White Rage that that demonstrates what you just described historically. That there is every time there is any kind of measure of progress for people of color in this country, and particularly African American people, there is always a commiserate uh, white backlash to that. Uh, it's incredibly uh, a, a sort of depressing narrative, but I, I believe it's true. And I believe we're living through one of those right now. I actually think for Christians, that's important that we understand that we can read the signs of the times that we are in and that we are not surprised by them. As Jesus uh, recommends, we count the cost before we start building that building. And for those of us called to this, part of counting the cost is recognizing that that's that cycle of, of backlash so that we are not surprised by that. I think too often we have been surprised by that and we have We have misinterpreted the moment to believe that we now are back on our heels, to believe that somehow the enemy is is winning. I I would actually uh, counsel us to think of ourselves alongside of Jesus, who doesn't stumble into the wilderness and has to then defend himself from the enemy, but is actually led by, the scriptures tell us, is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness uh, in order to face the enemy and remains in the wilderness until the angels of God lead him out of the wilderness. And so it's actually, in my interpretation, it's a it's a proactive move of God leading Jesus into the wilderness to confront uh, Satan in, in a foreshadowing of what will happen on the cross. But again, too often, we as Christians have uh, misinterpreted those wilderness moments as, as seeing that we're back on our heels and we need to uh, we need to be in more of a defensive posture. I'll say one other thing here because I know we've got a lot more to talk about. What you said is so right and necessary that we do the analysis, we do the historical work, we, we need the tools of sociology to help us here. At the end of the day, this is a, ba- a battle against the principalities and the powers of, of evil. and. And so I, I, I didn't grow up Pentecostal, but I get a little bit Pentecostal when I start to talk about this because I, I see no way forward without a powerful move of the Holy Spirit in our individual lives, but then in our in our systems and structures that, that we have accountability in as well. So for all of the analysis that we need to do, if there is not a, um, also a movement of prayer, of fasting, of of kind of biblical uh, understanding and discipline, I, I, we're we're always going to be rearranging uh, the furniture on a, on a sinking ship. So I, I do hope that that one of the things we we see here is a, a, a sort of spiritual revival that is not separate from the work of social justice, but understands how how deeply these things are are connected.
0: David, it's really interesting that you brought up this story of Jesus being led, right? That the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, because, you know, as I look around at, at white evangelicals who are starting to approach uh, issues of justice and asking questions of how this thing that they believe to be natural and normal actually came to be, right? How did the suburbs come to be? Those kinds of questions, right? Um you wrote an article for us in 2020, actually, for World Outspoken. You wrote an article for us that I'll include in the show notes for those that are curious. But in that article, you actually quoted uh, Reverend Francis Grimke. Am I pronouncing that last name correctly? Grimke. Uh, He's an African-American pastor of the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and he preached a sermon in 1898. I'm going to read the quote that you include in the article because I want to bring it back to this idea of, of us. Are we on our heels or were we led into the wilderness by the Spirit? But here's the quote from Reverend Grimke. He says, another discouraging circumstance is to be found in the fact that the pulpit of the land are silent on these great wrongs. The ministers fear to offend those to whom they minister. I'm going to stop there. There's more to the quote, but I'm going to stop there. Because this idea, the ministers fear to offend those to whom they minister. I see fear operating two ways. And maybe you can correct me if you see it differently. But I see either the fear as described by Reverend Grimke. There are pastors who are just terrified to say anything that'll sound like CRT. And all of a sudden, their churches are rioting. But then there's the other one, right? The pastors who are terrified to get this wrong and are Mm -hmm. stepping into the wilderness Not because they feel led, but because they're terrified, right? Mm -hmm. So how actually do we do this out of a spirit-led act of love and solidarity, which we're heading toward in our conversation, Mm -hmm. as opposed to either of the two fear responses Mm -hmm. that we've seen?
1: Yeah, no, I love that question, and I, I would say, at least uh, anecdotally for myself, sometimes when the spirit leads us, it can be terrifying. Those those two things can both be true at the same time, particularly when it's into territory we've never been before, right? It's 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 uncharted for ourselves personally, and I, I think that's maybe what you're describing for for some pastors and, and ministers. Um, but yeah, I think this is right. I think the, the two fears you described are are very true, and and I want to actually say for for some of these folks, they're they're not unfounded. You know, I've talked to pastors who have been fired, who have been silenced. I talked to one pastor who was put on trial in his denomination because of the, the way their polity works. So we should we should recognize that for for some of these men and women, uh, this is a, a real experience that they have to grapple with and they have to count the cost. And I honor them for that, particularly for those who have counted the cost and said, yes, I will still. I, I was just interacting with somebody online who. Um, was was basically booted out of his PhD program at his, at his e- evangelical uh, institution because he was working to, to do some work around th- theology and, and whiteness and so on. Uh, and everything was fine until the CRT scare, and then everything was, was not fine. So we should not pretend that that's not true. We shouldn't sweep that under the rug. Uh, but here's where I, I think the invitation is for those of us who are white. It's to recognize that God is with us in those places of fear. And that is a very simple thing to say, but for many white people, our discipleship has not uh, formed us to experience the presence of God in those places of fear. We have equated comfort, safety, and security with the presence of God. So that when we start to experience that fear, we think I've done something wrong. I've gone off the deep end. I've gotten too political, right? All that typical feedback that we hear, it gets legitimized because those emotions to to Dr. Dora's point earlier, um is 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 coming up in us in a very strong and powerful way. So the word that I would hope people could hear is allow the holy spirit to begin reinterpreting some of those emotions and some of those experiences actually as evidence of god's presence in our lives as though we are being faithful. Jesus warned us about this of course. He told us that this is what it's going to be like. Now we're just experiencing it. It's not to say we shouldn't seek wise counsel and be thoughtful in how we do this, but don't allow the experience of fear to be translated as somehow we have done something wrong or are outside of God's, God's will.
2: It's interesting. One of the things that came to my mind is that for us to come into understanding and experiencing, a God who is with us in the midst of fear, for a white community to understand that, hearing the stories of persons who've gone through enslavement, of persons who know what it is to walk through the wrong neighborhood, of things that we couldn't make a choice about, that we simply were on territory of terror. And that we understood that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, quite literally, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they will comfort me. That's where our comfort comes from, not from comfortable places. And to read such stories, to be in touch with the experiences of persons who've been through that. Those are places of great inspiration and transformation of our faith. And it just points to the fact that we need each other in this process. Um, the whole brotherhood, sisterhood peace is important if we don't see each other that way, we can't do this alone from one side or from the other. The collaboration is needed. We are one body.
0: David, I understand that you prefer the language of, the familial language of brotherhood and sisterhood. I think I've heard in another interview that you said you preferred that over the language of ally. Can you tell us more about why that's the case?
1: I can. Uh, I, I want to just real quickly just tag on to what uh, was just said there. That I mean, Scripture tells us that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And I I, I think part of what uh, what you said just there was about the power of testimony. And there's certainly a way that that can be abused. There's a way in which we can uh, put too much uh, too much expectation on on people to retell their story again and again and again. Uh, But I I don't think we should diminish uh, the the, the power of testimony within the body of Christ um, to to really shift some things.
2: But let me just say that we hear those stories, um, not like you said, by hearing them again and again and sort of ghettoizing those stories, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But we can hear them in significant ways if we hear them from places of... uh, of community yeah. of trying to extend it to each other yeah. from places far away from each other that we've that we've come to be a lifeline mm-hmm. then it becomes significant that story becomes a gift a gift and not an assumed thing yeah oh let's come together and do story let's do potluck and come together and do story I don't think so
1: mm-hmm
2: so instead it becomes a gift, right?
1: Yeah, amen and amen to all of that um, in my experience. Yeah, to the question about, about ally and, 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 uh, and, and friendship or, or sister and brother, I I'm, I'm certainly this is not an axe to grind on my part. I'm I'm fine with the with the language. I know I know why folks use it. I think it can be really helpful. I, I think as a Christian, I'm always just trying to think through the the language that scripture gives us and I, I think part of uh, one of the downsides that I see with the language of being an ally is an ally is is built on a treaty and treaties are broken and have been broken time and time again and particularly by white people in this country. Um there's a legacy of 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 just consistent uh, broken treaties, the language of friendship, however, biblically speaking, is covenantal language. It's it's a, a relationship that is held together, um, certainly by our own commitments, but also by the presence of God o- among us. So I, I'm never gonna if someone calls me their ally, I, that's an honor. I, I receive that and I'm thankful for that. I, I think personally. I, I I'm hopeful for more than allies. I, I'm hopeful for for a relationality that um, is held together by more than than a treaty. Um, so I, I don't know, Emmanuel. You, you, I, I'd be fine if you want to take issue with that, or if you think we should go in a different direction with that. But I I think that's that's my that's my desire, and I I, I want to be. Uh, I want the, I want my imagination around this stuff to be as as deeply formed
0: by Scripture as possible. So, Hence- and I'm not pushing you, brother. By the way, I, I agree with this idea. I just I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear you tease it out. That's all. Yeah.
2: You know, for us as Latinos, that's a very that's a very powerful language, because that's language of familia,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? That's language of familia, and that's Trinitarian language. Yes. yes. Right. We also have one step before we come to that, because we can't all of a sudden jump in and, hey, you're my brother. And that is neighbor.
1: Mm.
2: That also is biblical language. Yeah. Neighbor is the step that you take from having demonized someone and therefore dehumanize them because of their identity. And then you realize that they're neighbor. You're not at the place of covenant yet.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Right? But you are at the place where, if I see you as neighbor, I have moral obligation. Mm -hmm. And that's a step moving toward the other. Mm -hmm. And then there's another word, vinculo, vinculo, vinculo. Is a word in Spanish that you all don't really have in English. It's a theological, biblical understanding of the fact that we are sometimes brought together to do a work that only together can that work happen for the Basilea, for the rain. Mm -hmm. So that we can see the rain shining forth and so god creates these bonds calls us to these bonds these vínculos
0: which by the way that's the closest english we'll get to it the word yes. of bond or link that's as close mm-hmm. as it'll get but we we attribute it to kind of a person a person can be bond mm-hmm. right instead of mm-hmm. it can be embodied not so much live between us that's what elizabeth mm-hmm. is getting at
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: and so i may not like emmanuel it gets on my last nerve. But if I'm called into a vínculo with him, I got to put that aside. And we look at the Christ to do something together. And that's a fruit of this discipling piece that you're talking
1: about. Yes, yes.
2: That we can then create vínculos to bring transformation to this disease in our society mm-hmm. and to change our culture.
0: It'd be like saying, go from neighbor to being a bond person, mm-hmm. right? So not, mm-hmm. not having a bond, but being a bond person to be the kind of person that that bond makes, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a kind of interesting theological idea that exists in Latinidad or in, in Spanish church tradition that you're right, Elisa, I haven't seen that elsewhere. You know, as we think about that, bond-making, you, you not only have moved from the language of ally to the language of brother and sister, I've heard you talk about that, but you also move from the language of reconciliation to the language of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us also, right, we're talking about bond-making, being the kind of bond, bond people. Why, why make that move from reconciliation to the preference to talk about solidarity? A part of it is is pragmatic.
1: And by the way, I'm just I'm stuck on 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 that whole neighbor to the vinculo to to um you know to friend. I I I need one of you to write write that book because um, that's that's so good. That's so helpful. Um, or maybe you have, and I just don't know about it. In which case, we need to share it widely. Um, yeah, I I think part of it is pragmatic. The uh, the reconciliation movement has been going on long enough that that word in some cases has been watered down. And, and there's been some, some, frankly, there's some, been some pushback against the language of reconciliation. Uh, people have asked whether people can be reconciled who were never uh, conciliated in, in, in the first place. So, so that we're in a, we're in a period, I believe of some, what I call uh, interrogation of the reconciliation movement. Um, I, I describe the reconciliation movement as going from being invisible to being uh, sort of idolized. And now we're in a period of, of, uh, of, um, you know, interrogation, which is appropriate, I believe. Uh, And it allows for a space of reimagining what the reconciliation movement will look like in the years to come. So I I don't want to lose that language. Uh, You know, I've been mentored by Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, who's, you know, deeply informed why I want to hang on to that language of reconciliation. But I believe we see these examples of solidarity in Scripture, uh, which maybe help us to picture a little bit more what it looks like to actually live out reconciliation, which is to say that we are so uh, impacted by one another's experience that it becomes our own experience, that we cannot stand uh, at a distance from what the the, the sister or brother is experiencing. Um, we, we would all agree with this as Christian people, that we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice, but the nature of American segregation is is such that, that many white American Christians don't know who is weeping and, and certainly don't know who is rejoicing, and so we don't have the uh, the opportunity to join them in that weeping and rejoicing and and this is the real heartbreaking part we're 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 we are utterly content with that status quo <laughs> we're utterly content to not know who's weeping and, and who's rejoicing it's and the, the lead- comfort that's right that's right that's right Comfort with the status quo. Uh, in the lead up to the 2016 presidential election, uh, a friend of mine shared in staff meeting with this ministry that I was a part of. She's a, a Latina woman attending a Spanish-speaking congregation. Uh, said that their congregation was praying and fasting in the lead up to the election because there was so much fear in the in the air, and their their congregation was experiencing so much fear just in the way that their their community had been been demonized, uh, to, to to be frank. And I remember noticing that her church was within probably a 10 mile drive of a half dozen uh, churches in our denomination who are majority white, who I knew for a fact uh, were unaware of what that that congregation was experiencing, uh, was unable to enter into solidarity with them and be present with them in that particular moment. That presence could look a whole bunch of different ways, right? There's a ton of Christian creativity possible in solidarity. But if if we're not even able to see one another in that kind of way, then all possibility has been written off the table. And that's the heartbreak. So that, I think that's why, uh, Emmanuel, I want to invite people into solidarity because there's frankly so much that we're missing out on uh, in the Christian life when we when we neglect that. And it's it's meant to be a, just one of the simple characteristics of what it means to be a Christian person.
2: So then, have you talked about presence as a spiritual discipline Toward this re-discipling.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that presence is is actually uh, very, very important, and uh, I see this as one of the one of the, the more outward facing practices of our of our liturgies. There's the there's the gathering element of our liturgy that calls us to be present with one another in worship, and then there's the sending of our liturgy, which scatters us. Uh, to be, uh, you know, to be uh, present in our communities, but also um, among other other Christians. So, yes, I think I think that presence is uh, is incredibly important. How we think about that presence is is complicated, and I'm super actually curious how the two of you would think about this because um, in a racialized society, there's a way in which we have imagined ourselves as to be detached from the rest of creation as not having a mutual obligations with the with the creation itself and the and the communities formed by those local expressions of god's creation and so we 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 hover and we and we and we move and I, you all have have uh, interviewed dr jennings i believe on this on this podcast so i'm i'm just barely stumbling into his area of expertise so forgive me for that but But um, I think when we so when we think about presence, we end up talking about something that's strictly voluntary, that's highly individualized, that doesn't have those same bonds we were talking about a second ago. I think the Christian understanding of presence is is far more incarnational, far more creational. It takes into account the history of a place and its people. So it's a caveat to say, yes, I think presence is incredibly important. And I hope the way we talk about it is really embodied and, and holistic in that way.
0: You know, one thing that we haven't said, and, and forgive me for being sort of cynical in, in, in my response here, but I think we have to say it out loud for those that are already thinking it, because I know some listeners are thinking about it. When they think of the presence of, of white uh, Christians interacting with La Iglesia Latinas, what they're thinking about is a kind of structure and hierarchy that always means that the, that the white is instructing, and predetermining, packaging, right, funding, the way that the Iglesia Latina works, and then dictating some of those patterns, um, or yeah, or it's a, a kind of migratory kind of perception, right? I know of, I know, frankly, I know that that's the structure for a lot of Iglesia Latinas here in Chicago. Their funding comes from a white church that helped to start it because they, the white church, thought that they needed to be a presence among Latinos. I had to have a pretty complicated conversation recently with a church planting network here in Chicago, where I was like. I don't really know what the Latino churches need from you, right? I don't know what they need just yet. And that's not to say that we don't need the bonds, right? Not, that's not the, that's not to say that we don't need the bonds. But I think that piece, the, the the power and money piece, needs to be talked about and uncovered, right? So as you think about the way that you've been a bond person, David, as you talked in that story, right, where you paid attention to this sister and her church, right, How how do we... Encourage white pastoral leaders, ministry leaders, to avoid the status quo, even in their bond making. They have a way of bond making that's toxic, right? So, how do we avoid that?
1: Yeah, it's a kind of. Uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's a it's a sort of um, you know spiritual gentrification uh, of of a of a moving into a of a place or a community. Uh, really unable to, to see correctly, uh, unable to interpret correctly, right? And so we hear the language of, we're going to bring the gospel to this neighborhood or to this city. And 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 that's not an exaggeration. I'm a church planter. I'm still in the church planting world. So, you know, folks still talk like this, as though Jesus is not already uh, present, as though there are not already faithful women and men and uh, living this out. So, yeah, I think what you're describing actually runs very, very deeply, and you've brought in, um, you know, money and those hierarchies, which uh, we we just have we have to reckon uh, with with that. Um, so I, I I would counsel uh, other other white uh, pastors who are thinking about this to recognize the the profound needs that we have in these relationships. That when we are thinking about uh, this sort of uh, participation and collaboration we come with our own needs. We come with with our own lacks that, that we need met in these sorts of, of relationships. We don't come as the experts. We, we step into a community that is not our own community and we can't see rightly. We need help. We need to hear the testimonies of those who who can see, uh, see correctly. I, I do think we're just at a different moment in time right now where Uh, God's gifts to the world are so evident and so clear, and there are faithful uh, congregations in all of these spaces doing really good, good work. That, that this is a season of, of collaboration and we need to understand uh, what we need from those, from those relationships as well. And I realize I'm using the word need a lot and I'm doing that purposefully because those of us who are white, again, have not been discipled to, to reflect on ourselves in that sort of way. And there, boy, I could tell so many horror stories of how that goes sideways uh, so quickly, but we need to be in touch with the fact that the segregated nature of the churches that we have been a part of have left us with some profound wounds, with some profound gaps in our ability to to see well and to interpret rightly. And that one of the ways I believe God can start to heal some of that is is to, in humility, step towards uh, our sisters and brothers in Christ and say, what is it that God is doing uh, how, how might we learn from this? How, how might we we walk with you in this? What do you have to say to us uh, out of this out of this relationship? We we're in need of a missionary movement to the white evangelical church. It is a it is a field. Uh, a, I really believe this. It is a is a field that is desperately in need of uh, of cross cultural missionaries to step into it with these words of life and hope.
2: I'm glad you brought up the piece about power because solidarity always begins in a place of powerlessness. And it's very important to um, point that out, just as the cross is a place of powerlessness, of vulnerability. Yeah. I was pastor in a church that was uh, sharing facilities with a white church. Mm -hmm. I could tell you some horror stories about it, but what finally... uh, brought uh, a change and brought us to a place of solidarity is when a small group of persons from each congregation came together just to pray and read scripture together. The pastors weren't present Mm
0: -hmm.
2: because that too is a place of power. Mm -hmm. And they only allowed the power of the Holy Spirit.
0: Mm
2: And as they heard each other's requests for prayer, white brothers and sisters began to ask, what?
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You mean
2: that happened to your uh-huh. child? That should happen to anybody's child. And all of a sudden, that's when we became brothers and sisters. And they began to advocate in that community with us and they began to realize what racism had done in their community Uh and how they had been implicated and that was a place of forgiveness in some cases of confrontation in other cases uh of the of looking at that history and of being able to share mutual gifts to each other mm. from that place of powerlessness, which both communities were feeling.
0: You're talking about a process of conscientization, right? To quote Paulo Freire, the Brazilian philosopher, right? Of a, of a coming awake to a kind of idea, right?
2: Yeah, but it was also more because I don't think, you know, having spoken just previously about the denial piece,
0: mm-hmm.
2: Right. Conscientization has no ground. That seed has no ground to come on, unless Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit has prepared that ground.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: I could say that this happened to my child and you're just sitting there going, Oh, she's gotta be crazy. You know, our kid Mm -hmm. must've done X, Y, or Z, Mm -hmm. right? I could be coming from that place, but what made it that they were able to hear each other if it hadn't been? That they had made a practice of reading the word together of telling each other what that word meant from their different places
1: Mm.
2: yeah and of really hearing each other and then of having to pray together and to own if you pray together in such a way that i own what your hurt is yeah when i pray that's right that's a whole other space that's right and all of a sudden compassion comes Right. So you have conscientización, but then you have compassion. And I'm so sorry. Compassion goes a whole lot further than conscientization. <laughs> and compassion, not pity, and not sympathy, is what can then move us to the solidarity. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about a process of going from neighbor to vinculo to friend the sister and brother. And I love this this trajectory that we're aiming toward. I, I have to say, I went uh, with my wife, Kelly, we went and visited uh, Pastor Swanson and his congregation. Uh, David, who's the sister, future doctor who you pastor with? Well, Pastora, what is her name?
1: Michelle Dodson. Yeah, she's uh, finishing Dodson. up at Loyola and is now teaching at North Park Seminary.
0: I got to give her a shout out because, man, we went we went and fellowshipped with your congregation on Ash Wednesday and y'all did the Ash Wednesday uh, practice. Right. I did not grow up with that practice. In fact, Mm -hmm. I grew up in a tradition that that kind of uh, villainized it. Right. It made it made Mm -hmm. it a kind of evil thing. And so it was really profound when Pastora Dobson, is it or Mm -hmm. Dotson? Dodson with a D. Yeah. Dodson with a D. When um, Pazora Dodson put those ashes and, and said, you know, out from the ashes you came, and I don't even remember the rest of it, forgive me. But mm-hmm. uh, it was profound for me. It, it meant something to, to be fellowshipping with, with sisters and brothers on the south side of Chicago. We live on the north side now. Uh, speaking of this solidarity piece, I felt the kind yeah. of bond making that, that can happen, as Elizabeth talked about, as we pray together, as we read scripture together, as we seek the spirit together and recognize mm-hmm. what Jesus has done. Hey, as we wrap up here, David, what's a word that you want to say to either community, right? To, to the Latino community that is listening, to, to, to a white brother try to think through how he might be a bond person, Um as you think through that, what what might you want to say to the Latino community, or maybe you want to speak to white listeners who are listening to the Mestizo podcast today? What's the final word you want to give?
1: Yeah, I was reflecting as um, Dr. Conde Fraser was was talking about the um, you know the, the the move of compassion and in that particular story, I believe you used the word advocacy uh, that that sisters and brothers were invited into advocacy. I, I think that's a, it's, that's worth lifting up because there is a kind of uh, relationalism that can infect our reconciliation efforts, wherein we think that simply because we are in the room together, or we have made a couple of, uh, of friends who look different than ourselves, that, that we have succeeded. Uh, but, but the story you just told was one that that led to advocacy. It led to action. It led to a, a kind of mutual participation in the mission of God in a way that undoubtedly would be costly and sacrificial at at times. Th- this is what I think we're looking for in our day. Um you know I love Emmanuel that you came and worshipped with us. I believe there's actually something profound about those those very tactile services, services around the ashes or around the the body and the blood of Christ, for a multicultural community, in particular, there's an important lived theology in that. But we don't want that to be the end of the story. We we want to see how is it that the Holy Spirit is now leading these uh, these women and men. Who, who share a common identity in the baptismal waters and the Eucharistic blood to live out their faith together in ways that will be costly and at times will be sacrificial. This, this is the movement that we need to, to look for in our day. We don't need to fill sanctuaries with diverse groups of people. That, that's, <laughs> that's been played out. I think we have, we have seen uh, the end of that it's a beautiful thing we want more of that but we want to know where is that leading what is that pointing towards how is that testimony on a Sunday then lived out Monday through Saturday in a segregated and racialized world and I think that's a word for white people but as we all know whiteness impacts all of us and so I think we all ought to be looking for opportunities to live out that kind of solidarity together and frankly what you all are doing is such a helpful example of that I didn't mention this to you, Emmanuel, But I talked to a pastor on the East Coast recently, who's been really formed by this podcast and the theology you all are doing. And and so I, I think I, I bless you for that. I thank you for for this good work that you all are doing. We need more of it
0: uh, to to
1: fan that flame of of lived solidarity in our world.
0: Well, praise God, brother. Thank you. Speaking of solidarity, y'all may have heard my cat. He decided to join us in solidarity to wrap up the podcast today. So he's meowing here in the background. But uh, but thank you, David, for, for sharing that vision and for pursuing it. Right? Not just sharing it, but but I visited your church. I can say you're pursuing it with with Pastor and others who are trying so hard to um, to live into what the Spirit is calling us to uh, through prayer and through through fellowship together. Uh, Elizabeth, as always, you get the final word. Let me remind people here that the next episode of the show uh, will have Jeremy and Angelica Angelica Barahona. They are pastors of the Light Church. It's a church plant that is being launched in West Palm Beach. Uh, Jeremy is also one of the hosts of La Ventanita podcast. It's a podcast on the World Outspoken Network, all about trying to give you a a ventanita, a window into the church planting experience of a bicultural Latino. So we're going to have them on in the next show to hear about how their church plant is working, what they're doing, what unique things are happening as they try to live into this uh, bond-making in-betweenness. If you have questions about the conversation we had today, as always, familia, you can leave us a message at 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Dos nueve, nueve cinco. Leave us a 30 second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll make sure to answer it on the last episode of the season. Elizabeth, your final word.
2: I think that um, you spoke today about revival, but you also spoke about wilderness and about uh, not being afraid to step into spaces of wilderness. We want revival, but we don't want the wilderness. And so I want to say, let's welcome the wilderness, that
0: we might see revival. Amen. Y con eso, familia, se acabó.